Okay, you ready? You can hear me okay? Great, we're on? Perfect. Awesome. Let's go. I'm Peter Little, lead pastor at Christ Pacific Church in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. And you're listening to our Sunday Sermons podcast. To learn more about us or to subscribe to this podcast, visit us at cpchb.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, You know uh, that uh, Friday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day here. It's a day that we remember and we honor uh, what Dr. King stood for, right? He stood for uh, righteousness, justice, and truth. Dr. King is obviously most well-known as uh, probably the 20th century's most significant civil rights figure or defender. Uh, maybe the most significant in the history of our nation. Um, everything that Dr. King taught was rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's because Dr. King um, is the Reverend Dr. King. Sometimes we forget uh, that Martin Luther King Jr. is and was a pastor. All of his convictions about justice all of his convictions about righteousness and about truth, everything that informed him when it came to pursuing civil rights the way that he did, all of that was informed by the righteousness, the justice, and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was reminded uh, of a story that Dr. King told a number of times in the course of his teaching and in his preaching um, about his call to stand up for civil rights. The story goes that it was fairly early on in his ministry, and he found that he could not sleep. He was stressed out, to say the least. He was tired. He felt as though he could not do this any longer. And remember, this is very early on in his ministry. One, I think it was an early morning, I couldn't sleep, He came down to the dining room and was sitting in the kitchen or at the dining room table. And he heard in that moment of frustration, in that moment of uh, almost despair, like, God, I can't do this anymore. This is too difficult. I'm not sure that it's going to be fruitful. In that moment, Dr. King speaks of hearing a voice. And the voice that he heard said to him, Dr. King... I don't know if that's how the Lord addresses Martin Luther King Jr., but uh, Dr. King, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And behold, I will be with you until the end of the age. And that was the moment that Dr. King identifies as his launch into this ministry of Uh, fighting for and defending the civil rights of those who felt they didn't have any or didn't uh, have any. That was his launch into public ministry, so to speak. And uh, I was listening to someone telling this story this week, and they raised a really good question. And the question was this. Imagine in that moment, in the very early hours of the morning, Martin Luther King is at his dining room table, He's feeling weak, he's feeling tired, 
He's feeling frustrated. He's wondering if he can do this anymore. He's maybe on the verge of, of quitting and just doing something else. And this question was raised. What would have happened if Dr. King had an iPhone? What would have happened in that moment if rather than sitting in the silence, rather than waiting to hear something, what if he would have had access to an iPhone? What would you have done? Imagine you're tired, you're exhausted, you're frustrated, you're not sure if you can carry on anymore. You can't sleep, you're sitting by yourself, it's in the early morning, maybe you've brewed a cup of coffee already, maybe you haven't, and there's your phone. What would you do? I know what I would do. I'd probably read the news. Uh, I, would, uh, I would scroll through Instagram. Actually, that's not true. I don't really do Instagram. I hate that app. But I would pick up my phone and I would do anything to avoid the question, to avoid the frustration, to avoid the challenge. I would look at something on my phone that somehow would dampen the pain, that would take it away, that would help me to escape. What would have happened if Dr. King had access to an iPhone? What would have happened to his life? What would American history today look like? Good question, isn't it? There is a way to live a relaxed, unhurried, contented life in Jesus Christ, even in the midst of the pressures and difficulties of life. There is a way to mature into spiritual adulthood that is anchored in the love of God. There is a way to remain thoughtful when triggered in conversations. There is a way to listen to God's voice. There's a way to surrender to God's love and to God's will consistently, even when it's difficult. There is a way to give our lives in service to other people without becoming chronically exhausted. There is a way. How? Well, the answer lies in intentionally rearranging or arranging our days such that we integrate a regular practice of stillness, of silence, of solitude, of being with the living God so that we might hear the voice of the living God. Everything I just said comes straight out of this emotionally healthy spirituality course that I hope many of you will choose to engage. There is a way. There is a way to remain engaged in the world without becoming exhausted. This is what Jesus did. In Luke chapter 5 verse 16, we're told that Jesus would withdraw to deserted places and pray regularly. He would withdraw. The verb there is, um, is a, um, oh, I lost the word. Darn it. It's a participle. The verb there is a participle, which means it's an ongoing action. In other words, Jesus would regularly withdraw. And of course, we know that by reading the gospels. We see this pattern in Jesus' life where he would regularly engage in ministry, engage with people, engage in community, and then he would withdraw. And then he would engage in community, and then he would withdraw. And then he would engage, and on and on it goes. 
And in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, the verses that you just heard read, Jesus invites his disciples to join him in this rhythm, in this pattern, in this habit. He says, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest for a while. Let's pray as we consider what this means for us. Jesus, in a sense, what we are doing here today is coming away to rest for a while. So would you quiet our hearts that we might hear your voice? We want to hear your voice clearly, like Dr. King heard your voice. Because we don't want to give up on what you've called us to. Because we're too tired, or it's too difficult, or it's too scary, or too unknown. So Jesus, help us to hear your voice in a quiet place. It's your voice we need to hear. So as I say often here, Lord, in so much as my voice resonates with your voice, then may these words be heard and remembered. And in so much as my voice does not resonate with your voice and your heart, then let those words just fall off our backs, off our shoulders, and be forgotten. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. We pray this in the faithful name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, last Sunday we started this sermon series that we're going to be in for a number of weeks. A sermon series that I'm calling a Cultivating an Ecosystem of Grace. Cultivating an Ecosystem of Grace. An ecosystem, as I said last week, is a, a specific geographic area in which the flora and the fauna and the weather and the landscape and a whole bunch of factors all work together in order to form a bubble of life. And for the next eight weeks or so, we are going to invite you to consider your own ecosystem. All that is involved in your life. What are the things in your life that work together in order to cultivate a healthy ecosystem where you can grow, where you can be deeply rooted, where you can become fruitful through the work of the Spirit? And so we're inviting you to spend some time evaluating your own uh, personal ecosystem. And if we're going to evaluate and then cultivate a specific kind of ecosystem, we're going to have to be deliberate, right? We're going to have to be intentional. These kinds of ecosystems don't just happen. Growth doesn't just happen. We're going to have to do a little bit of design, So as I said last week, just as a healthy vineyard will require a horticulturist to design an ecosystem that promotes health in that vineyard, so also you and I are probably going to need to do a little bit of design, some intentionality, in order to cultivate an ecosystem that is marked by grace and love and joy. Last week, I introduced you to this ancient Christian practice known as a rule of life. A rule of life. A rule of life is an intentional, a set of intentional rhythms and habits that make abiding in Christ the center point of your life. And if you remember last week, I invited you not to be intimidated or scared by that word rule because it does not mean rules for life. 
It's not an invitation to write up a whole bunch of do's and don'ts, a list of rules that you should or should not follow, but rather that word rule is just a translation of the Greek word for trellis. Here's a trellis. So a trellis is a kind of lattice work or a kind of structure upon which vines grow. And a lattice is required in order for a vine to be healthy. Without a lattice, without a structure, a grapevine would not be able to get off of the ground and the grape clusters would be too close to one another. And so a trellis provides support, structure. For what purpose? So that the vine can be healthy and fruitful. So a rule of life is not a list of rules. A rule of life is simply a structure. A little bit of a skeleton to, uh, to help us become more healthy in Christ, more fruitful in Christ. And today we're going to talk about uh, a couple of aspects of this rule of life. And that uh, is the twin habits or the twin rhythms of silence and solitude. I'm going to use these two words a bit as synonyms. They obviously are slightly different, but as you No, they they often go together. The crowded noise of the outside world can easily translate into crowded and chaos and noise in our own souls, right? Can you relate to this notion of having a crowded or noisy soul? A rule of life is at least an invitation to become less crowded inside, to become less noisy inside, so that there is space for what matters, and so that there is silence in which we can hear the voice of God. Isn't that interesting, by the way, that in order to hear well, we need silence. We actually need the lack of sounds in order for us to hear well, especially when it comes to the voice of God. So there is a way, there is a way to live in a relaxed, unhurried, contented kind of way, even in the midst of today's pressures and complexities. And when we practice regular rhythms or habits of silence and solitude, we are building a trellis upon which our soul can become more fruitful in Christ. And more than anything else, when we practice these rhythms of silence and solitude, we're creating space for us to hear the Father's voice. And hearing the Father's voice is, I think, probably the most important thing when it comes to us experiencing spiritual transformation, when it comes to us growing as disciples of Jesus. Hearing the voice of God is maybe the most important thing. This is who we need to hear. And the scriptures describe the Father's voice as a still, small voice. The Father's voice is so often a still, small voice. And so that's why it's often difficult to hear and to discern in the midst of the noise that characterizes the world and often our lives. Krista and I recently finished watching a docuseries by National Geographic. It's called Welcome to Earth. 
It's with uh, Will Smith. I think it's a play on Independence Day. He has this famous line uh, where he says, Welcome to Earth. But it's this extraordinary adventure that these National Geographic photographers and scientists and explorers go on with Will Smith as they explore Earth's greatest wonders and reveal some hidden secrets about the creation. It's, um, it's a really interesting series. It's not nearly as good as some of the others, but uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. In one of the episodes, uh, a few of the scientists go deep, deep underground. They, they go into this cave in the Dolomites in Italy, and they go like 1,200 feet underground, 1,200 feet under the surface of the earth, and they go there because they're seeking a place of absolute silence. And when they get 1,200 feet underground, they are entering into a space of absolute silence. And what happens in this place of absolute silence is they begin hearing, through some special instruments that they have, they begin hearing something that cannot be heard anywhere else. They begin hearing the earth moving. Scientists call it earth tides. So we know that two times a day, because of the interaction between the moon and the earth, we know that two times a day the ocean rises and falls. But what is less obvious to us, what you may not know, is that the moon also does something to the land. That the earth beneath us also rises and falls two times a day. In fact, New York City rises and falls up to 14 inches every single day. And if you could eliminate all of the noise in New York City, you would be able to hear the sound of the earth moving. Isn't that astonishing? The sounds of these earth tides, I think, are kind of like the Lord's voice. Right? They are always there, always speaking, always available to us to hear, and yet so often drown out by all the other noise that bombards our eardrums. You have to go 1,200 feet beneath the earth's surface in order to hear the earth's tides. But thankfully, I don't think we need to do that sort of thing in order to hear the Lord's voice. But we do need to practice some forms of silence, some forms of solitude. We need to be intentional that we might be able to hear God's voice more clearly. In 2010, uh, a number of uh, marketing and branding experts got together in Finland, and they, uh, their goal was to ask this question, what are people most hungry for, and what are some of the best things that Finland has to offer in answer or in response to what people are most hungry for. These were some of the world's leading marketing experts and branding experts. And what you're looking at on the screen is where they landed in terms of a branding and marketing push for Finland. There is such a hunger for quietness for a lack of chaos, a lack of bombarding noises. 
And Finland, it turns out, is a very quiet place. In fact, uh, sometimes Finland, I understand, is uh, sort of teased by some of their uh, friends farther to the south because what is there to do in Finland? Nothing. Much of the rest of Europe is bustling with life and opportunities. And these marketers and branding experts were like, exactly. Silence is what Finland has to offer. And that is a really valuable asset because we are actually hungry for silence. I want to read a brief uh, story for you from 1 Kings chapter 19. This is about the prophet Elijah. Um, he, uh, he's exhausted. He has been on the run for his life. And I'm going to read you a couple of verses where um, he has an encounter. He said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now, there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting the mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. Can you imagine how loud that was? But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. Have you ever been in an earthquake? But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elisha heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elisha? The sound of sheer silence. It's interesting to me. When did Elijah hear God speak? Not in the fire, not in the earthquake, not in the wind, but in the silence. In the silence. In the mid-20th century, a bunch of epidemiologists discovered that there were correlations between um, high blood pressure and chronic, uh, chronic stress... When, uh, they were in, when people were in situations or contexts with uh, chronic noise sources like highways or airports. Later research indicated uh, that there was a link between noise and increased rates of sleep loss, heart disease, and tinnitus. That ringing that some of us experience in our ears. Neurophysiological research suggests that noises... Um, they first activate this part in our brain called the amygdala. And like I said last week, this is way above my pay grade, but I think uh, I have at least a tiny bit of a grasp of what's going on here, and it's so interesting to me. Noises activate a part of the brain called the amygdala, and this part of your brain is actually associated with memory formation and with emotion. And so this activation of your amygdala prompts an immediate release of stress hormones, right? So you hear noises and the amygdala part of your brain immediately releases stress hormones like cortisol. And people who live in consistently loud environments often experience, not surprisingly, chronically elevated levels of stress hormones. In other words, too much noise is stressful. Not enough silence is stressful. 
There was a study in 2006, I know that was ages ago, published in a scientific journal called Heart, where it found that two minutes of silence is more relaxing than listening to relaxing music. Based on the changes in people's blood pressure and their blood circulation in the brain. And if you are going to go through emotionally healthy spirituality, you are going to be introduced to the practice of keeping two minutes of silence. Turns out it's good for your brain. In 2013, there was another study, this one on mice. And it was published in a different scientific journal, Brain Structure and Function. And in this study, they used different types of noise and different types of silence in order to, uh, to monitor the effect of these sounds and this silence on the brains of these mice, right? So we're going we're gonna to use uh, silence and different kinds of sounds. We're going to see how it affects the brains of these mice. And what the scientists had planned on doing was using the mice that experienced a whole bunch of silence as kind of the baseline. But what they discovered was that when these mice were exposed to two hours of silence every day, those mice developed new brain cells. New brain cells in this part of the brain called the hippocampus. Am I saying that right? Some of you, there's got to be a neuroscientist out here who can tell me if I'm saying that right. right. So these mice actually grew more brain cells in their hippocampus. And the hippocampus is the part of the brain that is also associated with, you got it, memory, emotion, and learning. This is so fascinating to me. Memory, emotion, and learning. So is it possible... That silence, since it helps us to remember better, since it helps us to become more emotionally mature, and since it helps us to learn better, is it possible that silence is actually a very intentional and specific gift that the living God has given us so that we can remember his faithfulness so that we can grow to become spiritually and emotionally mature disciples of Jesus Christ, and so that we can be better students who learn better. And that word disciple is a synonym for student. To be a disciple is to be an apprentice or a student. Isn't that interesting that these mice, when exposed to two hours of silence every day, the part of their brain that helped them to remember to develop their emotions, and to learn, that part of their brains actually grew. So I think that neuroscience is affirming what the ancient Christian tradition has known for a very long time, (laughs) that silence is good for you. And yet we rarely, right, we rarely intentionally integrate silence into our days. We're so inexperienced with silence, many of us, We're so inexperienced with it that, get this, astronauts, as part of their training to prepare them for space, astronauts have to undergo a special training regimen in order to prepare them for the silence that they will experience in space. Because you know that space is silent, right? Space is a vacuum. Sound waves cannot travel in a vacuum. 
So every time you watched Star Wars and you heard a TIE fighter whiz by or you saw the Millennial Falcon launch into light speed or you watched these and listened to these you know, intergalactic battles with these massive explosions, every time you heard that on the big screen, George Lucas was lying to you. All of that would have been entirely silent. It's silent in space, and it's so jarring, it's so quiet, something that we're not used to at all. The astronauts actually have to train for this. They have to prepare for silence. I think a good question that we have to ask when we're thinking about silence and solitude, a good question is this, is practicing silence and solitude actually just escapism? Are we, when we practice silence and solitude, are we just avoiding the pain? You know, I mean, is this the real opiate of the masses that we, we're just going to walk away from the challenges and difficulties of life, we're just going to ignore all the challenges and problems and complexities, and we're going to withdraw? Is that what we're doing in silence and solitude? I think these are really good questions that we need to wrestle with and answer. And let me begin to respond to those questions. One of the distinctives of Christian prayer, of Christian meditation, particularly silence and solitude, is that in silence and in solitude, we are seeking fullness, not emptiness. We're seeking, seeking fullness, not emptiness. Right, so you may know that in many Eastern religious traditions, one of the goals that is being sought after in silence or meditation or solitude, one of the goals is emptiness. Empty your mind. And, you know, these are not actually bad practices in and of themselves. You know, to declutter your mind, make space in your mind. But when these things become the end, then these Eastern religious traditions, when they get what they're aiming for, is actually just emptiness. When, you, when you're aiming for emptiness and you get it, you are empty. When you're aiming for detachment and you achieve that, you are detached. But emptiness and detachment are not the goal when we speak as disciples of Jesus about pursuing silence and pursuing solitude. I mean, I think only a glance at who Jesus was and how he lived his life would tell us that emptiness and detachment is not the goal. That is not what Jesus pursued. The goal of silence, the goal of solitude is fullness, not emptiness. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul prays for the Christians in Ephesus, and he's praying for us likewise. And he writes this, he, he writes that, I pray is that we would um, be able to grasp, to comprehend just how big God's love is. You know, that you might comprehend how deep and wide and long and high and expansive the love of Jesus Christ is. Why? Paul goes on, he says, so that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. It's fullness, not emptiness, that is the goal of silence and solitude. The goal of comprehending God's love, the goal of hearing God's voice, the goal of being with the living God is to be filled with all the fullness 
of God. And so while we may need to empty our minds of some of the chaos, while we may need to empty our minds of some of the lies or unnecessary baggage that we carry around with us, we do this in order to make room for the truth, in order to make room for the voice of God, in order to make room for being filled with all the fullness of God. It's fullness, not emptiness, that is the goal. And similarly, the practice of silence and solitude is not aimed at escaping the world. The point here is not to simply withdraw for the sake of withdrawing, but actually the goal is to engage the world faithfully. Jesus regularly withdrew to deserted places so that he could re-engage with all of those with whom he was in the presence of. And we too, we need to withdraw for a time so that we can re-engage with all of the people that we are called to engage with. And, mind you, so that we can also engage with the woman or man whom God has created us to be. So we don't withdraw from the world, we withdraw for the world. Did you catch that? I'll say it again. We don't actually withdraw from the world. We withdraw for the world. In other words, the purpose of our disengagement is actually more faithful engagement. We must go away from people in order that we might be truly present when we are with people. Elton Trueblood wrote a little book in 1961 about a strategy for how the church can engage contemporary culture well. I have not read this book but I've read a little bit about it and some wonderful things that he has written in it. It would be fascinating to me to read that book. What was cutting-edge strategies for engaging the culture well in 1961? Here's one of them. I think it's still very, very relevant. He wrote this little book called The Company of the Committed, and in it he wrote this. He says, you know, a person who is always available is not worth enough when they're available. If you are always available, you're never really all available, are you? So be like Jesus. That's the invitation today. Get away for a while. You know, five minutes here, an hour there, a whole day every once in a while. I don't want to be too prescriptive here as you think about... uh, building your trellis, your rule of life, and, and trying out some habits or rhythms that would um, promote an ecosystem of grace in your life. But I also don't want to say nothing about how you might do this. So let me say a few things. Here are some ideas for you to consider. Very simple. First of all, when it comes to practicing silence and solitude, and any of any spiritual discipline for that matter, Start where you are at, not where you think you should be. Right, so you might be thinking to yourself, oh, I really, I really should be able to spend an hour a day sort of by myself, you know, in silence without any inputs, you know, maybe not even without listening to music, not reading a devotional book, just an hour of silence. I really think I ought... Uh, to be there. But maybe um, 
the place you're at is, is you don't hardly ever incorporate any silence into your life. I want to suggest to you that setting out to start spending an hour a day in silence might not be a great formula for success because that's like starting where you think you should be rather than starting where you're at. So if you rarely or hardly at all spend any time in silence, start there. Start with two minutes a day. It turns out that's really beneficial for your brain, your brain which the living God created and loves and redeemed. Two minutes. So just start where you're at, not where you think you should be. You know, maybe someday like you'll get to that place where, where you want to be, uh, that place of spending an hour a day in silence and in solitude. But if you're not there, don't worry about it. Don't fret it. Just start where you are. You know, I don't know if any of you are marathoners. I certainly am not. I don't know why anyone would want to do that sort of thing. But I do know that if you want to run 26.2 miles and you don't really run very much, the last thing you should do is go out and run 26.2 miles. What you should do is you should go out and try jogging a mile <clears throat> and, and, and walk jog maybe. And then when you get that down, maybe you can walk jog a mile and a half. You know, and then you can work your way up to 5K, and then you, you, you know what I mean? Like, this is how we train for something, and, and why should it be any different for silence and solitude? So start where you're at, not where you think you should be. And then, and then this. When it comes to rhythms and habits, I think we need to have a various rhythms and habits when it comes to solitude and silence. And so let me uh, propose to you that something like this might be helpful. For us to practice minutes a day, hours a week, days a month, and weekends a year. Now, let me say that again a little more clearly. Can you carve out some minutes every day to be quiet, to listen for God's voice? Again, start where you're at. Maybe that's two minutes. Maybe it's 10 minutes. Maybe it's 40 minutes. Can you carve out some minutes every day? to be quiet, to listen for God's voice. And then when you think of your week, can you carve out some hours to be quiet once a week? Maybe you do this during a kind of Sabbath that you uh, might enter into. We're going to talk about Sabbath uh, soon. But can you carve out maybe just one hour or maybe it's three hours or maybe it's a whole day, but can you carve out an hour or a few one time a week? And then when you think about your month, can you, could you carve out a whole day in a month to be quiet? And, uh, you know, I mean, are we talking about 24 hours? Well, you've got to get sleep in there somewhere. So what are we talking about with the day? I don't know. Maybe we're talking about eight hours. Again, start where you're at, but... Could you imagine once a month to carve out a day? And then to think about your year. Uh, could you carve out a whole weekend of silence and solitude? A, a kind of retreat. Two days maybe, three days. Maybe a whole week. Again, start where you're at, not where you think you should be. These are the kind of rhythms that can help promote a healthy ecosystem 
of grace. Can you carve out some minutes every day? Can you carve out an hour or some hours every week? Can you carve out a day every month? Could you carve out a weekend in a year? You know, silence is, and I'm, I'm about to land the plane here. Silence is primarily an act of listening, but it's also an act of not talking. Richard Foster um, wrote this classic book. It's called The Celebration of Discipline. And uh, he says this in that book. He says, silence puts the stopper on all self-justification to let God be our justifier. In other words, silence is in part... Silence is in part the absence of our self-justifying talk, right? Whether it's self-talk or talk aimed at others. We are creatures of words, and while we can use words in very wonderful and powerful ways to bless people, we can also use words to distort reality. We can use words to curse. We can use words to lie, and we can use words to self-justify ourselves. And the passage that we heard read earlier from Ecclesiastes says that it is better to draw near and listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools is humanly initiated religious talk. The sacrifice of fools is too much talk when talk is not warranted. It's the self-defending, self-justifying, self-promoting, self-assuring, self-centered talk. That many of us fall victim to. The book of Ecclesiastes is part of the Old Testament um, section of wisdom literature. So Ecclesiastes and Job and Proverbs, we call this wisdom literature. And the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is in part that it is much better to draw near and listen to what the Lord has to say to you about you. It's much better to do that, to listen to what the Lord has to say to you and about you than it is for us to draw near to the Lord and say something to God about God. You know the saying, you were given one mouth and two ears for a reason. This is the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Silence strips us of our defenses. It strips us of that temptation to defend ourselves, to justify ourselves. And this is why I think silence is a deep act of trust. This is an act of faith. When we are quiet, we are putting our faith in the living God. Even though silence, in the midst of silence, there's no speaking going on, even so, we're saying a whole lot. Because what we're actually saying is, God, I trust you to be my defender and my justifier. I do not need to defend myself to myself or to anyone else or to you. For you alone, God, are my defender and my justifier. And I wonder, is this why Jesus was able to stand silently before his false accusers? Do you remember that at the end of his life when he was undergoing this trial He was being falsely accused of all sorts of things, although what he wasn't being falsely accused of was being God. He was like, yeah, you're right about that. That's true, I am. But he was able to stand silently 
in the face of all of that injustice. Why? Why? Was it because he had spent enough time with his father, with our father, with the living God, he had withdrawn to deserted places to pray often enough that he knew He had this deep and abiding knowledge that his father was his defender. His father was his justifier. He knew who he was. Is this why he could so boldly entrust his life into the father's care? Friends, let's follow Jesus. Let's follow his example. Let's follow his teachings. And let's place our trust in the living God by regularly stopping to talk. That didn't come out right. By regularly stopping our talking. By regularly being quiet. Thankfully, we don't have to go 1,200 feet underground to do this. But you might need to find a place. I think this is what we uh, mean when we talk about a prayer closet. You might need to find a place where you can be quiet, where you can hear the voice of God, where you can hear those rumblings like the earth tides, always there, always speaking, always present to you. If we could just eliminate enough of the noise, be still for long enough to hear God say, you are my beloved daughter, You are my beloved son. And today, I am well pleased with you. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, thank you for the example that you set for us to regularly go away. Um, You are God, infinitely powerful. And yet you are also fully human and And so you had these human limitations around how much energy you had, how much time in the day there was, around your capacity to engage with people. And so you would regularly go away and and pursue silence and solitude. Thank you for this example, Jesus. Would you help us this week to consider ways that we can follow you in this regard? Ways that we also can be quiet and listen. And in fact, would you quiet our hearts and our minds? But sometimes, Lord, as, as you know, we can eliminate the noise outside, but there's still an awful lot of noise inside. So would you quiet the noise inside? Would you, the maker and giver of peace, give us the gift of peace in our hearts? that we might hear your voice reminding us, helping us to remember who we are and whose we are. Jesus, uh, you know um, that this is a struggle for me and and, uh, presumably a struggle for many of us gathered here and listening online. For, for some of us, this comes naturally, being quiet, being alone. Would you help those for whom this comes naturally to really lean into this strength? And 
for those of us for whom this is a challenge, by your grace and mercy, would you invite us into this silence, welcome us into this silence, and help us to be in this silence and solitude, beginning where we are. So speak to us, Jesus. For we have come to the altar to hear your voice, to seek your face, to pursue your presence. We love you, Jesus. Speak. Your servants are listening. Thanks for joining our Christ Pacific Sunday Sermon Podcast. To hear more of our sermons, or to subscribe, or to learn how you can be engaged with what we're up to in Huntington Beach, please visit us at cpchb.org.